Hello, this is John Lidecker, and welcome to the seventh episode of Variations, tracing the history of appropriative collage in music. There was an avalanche of books on the subject of 20th century music, published in the late 60s, each attempting to define the state of what some then called modern classical. But the historical narrative for classical music was coming apart. Music writers were faced with a proliferation of specialists, each marching to the periphery in search of new musical forms that had never been heard before, while the audiences for their music dwindled. It could not yet be seen who the true leaders of the time were, the people who, as Bach and Beethoven before them, were expanding the vocabulary of modern music in a way that all after them would follow. The musical universe described in these books was almost precisely limited to orchestral music scored with traditional notation. And very few of these late 60s books even mentioned the Beatles, the group who at that point had retired from live performance to concentrate on studio composition, and whose recordings were finally validating the pop album as a high art form. The audiences had made up their mind long ago about the classical music of the 20th century. Now that we can no longer call that music modern, after medieval, baroque, classical, and romantic, we can call this period popular, the word which neatly captures all of the major characteristics and how people came to both produce and listen to music. Over the course of that century, the location of what the audience considered to be a composition gradually migrated from written notation to the sound recording. From jazz onward, the solitary art of transcribing notes onto paper was no longer necessary to carry one's music across cities and centuries. Performers suddenly enjoyed the rights of composers. And recordings not only captured performances beyond the reach of sheet music, but revealed music once again as a social practice, and not just a set of instructions for musicians to obey. We will remember the popular era not by any one dominating figure, like Bach, but by a continuum of performers playing their own music. And if there is an equivalent to Bach for the popular age, it is no accident that it isn't an individual, but almost certainly a collective. And the people who are arguing about which one of the Beatles had the best solo career are having conversations that are much less relevant than the ones discussing the contributions of the many people who have been called the fifth Beatle. The manager who sculpted their image, the producer who arranged their music, and the engineers who designed their sounds. So if any one pop song taken by itself is still a model of self-expression, an individual's voice, the whole of pop culture is increasingly experienced by us as a collage, a fabric of voices. And this is where collage and sampling come in. It is a way of composing closer to the way that most of us now experience music. A composer's voice that leaves the other voices audible, that brings emulation and innovation back into balance as equally necessary values. Collage music reminds us directly that music is not something that one person can ever own. It is rather something that we are allowed to join as it sings itself through. The word remix is now used to describe any form of creative editing, from film to corporate management. But the term began in popular music. In late 60s Jamaica, instrumental b-sides of dance hall tunes called versions became vital tools for MCs to toast new lyrics over at outdoor parties. 
using recordings as elements in live performance. The fuzziness was continued by King Tubby, who began producing multiple mixes of the songs recorded in his studio, using the mixing board as a live instrument to create different performances of a song using the same recording. Tubby would strip the music down to low-end rhythms and pull brief snippets of vocals and guitars into taffy, creating the language of what would become known globally as dub music. In the States, the term remix was first meant literally, replaying a multi-track recording with the mixer's faders in new positions to change the balance of sounds. When the Grateful Dead's 1969 album, Oaxamoa, was reissued with a note on the back cover saying, remixed September 1971, fans encountered a radically different album. Some sounds were missing and others uncovered. Soon the term expanded to include any editing, engineering, or even additional recording applied to an existing song. The originator of the remix, as the term came to be understood from the early 70s onward, was Tom Moulton, who rearranged pop songs to three or four times their original length, dropping out the vocal to create long instrumental breakdowns that would build to ecstatic peaks. Studio tools progressed, remixers took more liberties, and began releasing alternate versions of entire albums, such as Martin Russian's retool of the Human League album Dare, released as Love and Dancing in 1982. Labels were quick to learn the market value of a remix. Nile Rodgers radically rebuilt a shorter remix of Duran Duran's The Reflex, and it became their first number one U.S. single, begging the question, who wrote this hit? The presence of names like Francis Kevorkian, Arthur Baker, or Shep Pettibone on a 12-inch would sell copies, granting further artistic license to those who remixed. By the late 80s, remixers were tweaking or replacing sounds for production that frequently bore no resemblance to the original, save for the vocal. And by the 90s, sometimes even the vocals had gone missing or were hopelessly obscured, such as in the work of Aphex Twin. By this point, the remixer had become the composer. So it makes sense that at this point in the timeline, we also see producers and DJs releasing instrumental solo albums, as well as an influx of self-expressive sampling while outside of hip-hop. The folk singer-songwriter Beck saw his career take off after he began collaborating with producers like Carl Stevenson and the Dust Brothers, who augmented his stream-of-consciousness fragmentary lyrics with sample collage. It's tough to pull off the trick of seeming both ironic and sincere at the same time, but collage allows an individual to express both from the heart. If his debut Mellow Gold is still his best album, the follow-up Odelay was the one that made the point and sold over two million copies. 
got the shadow coming up in the mix next. He's going to go deep into the hip-hop underground. On DJ Shadow's debut album, Introducing, the edits are so polished that you have to listen closely to hear how all the instruments have been sourced from separate records. While the idea of a collage record where the seams have been polished out of the mix seemed odd to some sampling fans, a huge new audience heard this album less as a conceptual work than an emotional one. And those seams are still there. The beauty of a track like Midnight in a Perfect World comes from the fact that the vocals almost, but do not perfectly fit over those chords. A trained vocalist would probably have corrected the melody to fit. Collage allows us to compose new harmonies after the fact of performance. After a series of collage mixtapes connecting ambient music with hip-hop, termed Ilbient, Paul D. Miller released his first album as DJ Spooky, Songs of a Dead Dreamer. At the moment when hip-hop had become the domain of millionaires, Spooky traded on the connection between early hip-hop and art music practice in a way that critics found irresistible. Legendary duo Cold Cut founded the Ninja Tune label in the 90s, signing a roster of sampling artists such as The Irresistible Force, DJ Food, Kid Koala, and countless others. Perhaps the most influential signing was the Brazilian Amon Tobin, who identified the core aesthetic of drum and bass by titling his 1997 debut Bricolage, making something new out of what happens to be available, less subversion than vital recycling. 
slicing samples down to the grid, Todd Edwards pushed house music further towards microsampling, slicing his sources down to eighth and sixteenth notes and rebuilding them into melodies that he could call his own. Londoner John Wall bought a sampler in the early 90s, less concerned with the politics of copyright than the opportunity to compose his own symphonies, using sounds sourced from the vocabulary of modern classical and jazz. But music that at first seems acoustically plausible slowly folds itself into unlikely repetitions and impossible shifts of sonic frame. Us. Hello, and welcome to People Like Us. How much do most of us know about people like us? Less influenced by American pop art than basic industrial surrealism, British artist Vicki Bennett has been producing audio and video cut-ups as People Like Us since the early 90s. 
erasing the thin line between irritation and entertainment. She creates something far more complex than a simple critique of cultural kitsch. You can start to reclaim the fun from a tedious world by listening more closely to the background music that you only think you're ignoring. This is Medley. the kitten and the snow are white. Our touch tells us that the kitten is burning. Hey, Bev, I think I smell something burning. Bye. British trio Stockhausen and Walkman collapse the distance between classic electronic music and kitchen easy listening by using samples and structures from both. Those who were reassured that what sounded like New Age flute samples would usually turn out to be something like Verez were joined by a wider audience who simply enjoyed strangely catchy music, as heard on the albums Organ Transplants and Oh My Bag.
drawing from 60s easy listening, garage rock, and music concrete, the New York quartet Dymaxion composed things that sounded and behaved much like pop songs. The sounds are nostalgic, but the behavior is modern, welded entirely from samples from the foundation to the details. This is Antler Dally from sampler in large ensembles in Manhattan. David Shea's solo music allied the distinctions between the pop, folk, and art music of the East and the West in works that are frequently performed in real time. This is Satyricon, live from 1997. Another sampling band with an indie rock aesthetic, Lecture on Nothing, focused on found speech edited in musical ways. 
setting Emerson's civil disobedience to music. This is Turk Song from 1997. It is not desirable to cultivate a respect for the law. So much as for the right. Must the citizen ever for a moment or in the least degree resign his conscience to the legislator? Is a democracy such as we know it the last improvement possible in government? Is a democracy such as we know it the last improvement possible in government? Government does not concern me much. It is not many moments that I live under a government. If a man is thought free, fancy free, imagination free, unwise rulers or reformers cannot fatally interrupt him. Is a democracy such as we know it the last improvement possible in government? Is a democracy such as we know it the last improvement possible in government? Hailing from Los Angeles, Tom Rescian's collages of 50s lounge music and anything else were recorded in the 80s but found a wider audience in the 90s on the CD Chaotica. The jury-rigged assemblage of tape loops and digital processing allows him to improvise his pre-recordings into strange little structures. Positing sampling as surveillance, Robin Rambo's Scanner Project used private cell phone conversations as source materials, showing that the public domain is expanding faster than most of us care to admit. One minute you're saying you don't want relationships, you don't want women, you don't want one woman, you want, you know, many, you don't want to be stuck with one. That's only my problem, isn't it? Yeah, but now it's totally opposite. 
isn't it? Well, it's only my business, isn't it? Anyway, what? You make it sound like it's your business. Hello? Yeah. You're all right. Yeah, I'm fine. Are you missing me? Beginning as a guitarist, Eric M. moved to turntables and CD players in the late 90s, contrasting analog and digital artifacts, and using samples often too short to retain a strong connection to their parents. This is from his 1997 CD, Zygosis. his installation work Vinyl Requiem for 180 turntables in 1993. His signature style involves playing back multiple records at half and quarter speed, which exaggerate the crackles and hisses, and melts traditional expectations about pacing, leaving only pure immersive sound, a historical archive so large that it seems to be slowing down under its own weight. This is from his work Vinyl Coda. The use of record players as a musical instrument dates back to the early 1920s, but it wasn't until the 90s that the term turntablism emerged. The DJ had vanished as a soloist from charting hip-hop to focus on developing the art in a global underground of conventions and competitions, as documented on Bomb Records' Return of the DJ series. The Invisible Scratch Pickles, a legendary Californian collective featuring DJ Kubert, Mixmaster Mike, Yoga Frog, D-Styles, Shortcut, and DJ Disc were six soloists playing together, each member scratching vinyl of drums, chords, and melodies coming together with their parts like any musical group. On this excerpt from the Sugar Fragger Show, every beat and every note is individually scratched. These aren't loops, this is live music.
that about now. Yeah, now. We're going to get to the old school beat of things. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah, yeah. With the light skin brother DJ. The chief rocker star child. In the house. DJ mixtapes are the most accurate documents of hip hop history. From the beginning, the only way to present music with uncleared samples. Music that labels were incapable of releasing. If DJs like Red Alert perfected the blended mix, DJs like Kid Capri went meta on the 1989 tape 52 Beats, a sequence of all of the greatest breaks beat matched and scratched together in one go. Exclusive, nigga. Brand new from the old dirty bastard. It's the do yeah. 95 live, nigga. <laughs> In the 90s, mixtapes also became big business, forging a massive alternative distribution network. Some of the most radical tapes came from Houston's DJ Screw, who created the chopped and screwed subgenre by slowing his choices down to swamp-like speeds, the psychedelic hiding in the familiar. As turntablism evolved, some artists were prompted to investigate the intrinsic qualities of CD players well before they became archaic. Beginning in the late 80s, Nicholas Collins, Yasunao Tone, and the Evolution Control Committee were among those to write pieces for malfunctioning digital playback. Tone's solo for Wounded CD from 1995 was already less about any form of nostalgia, as Tone learned that nearly all recognizable audio vanishes during playback when you overwhelm a player's built-in error correction by covering up the disc with scotch tape. The German trio Oval turned CD-skipping artifacts into rhythmic pop on their 1996 release Systemisch which member Frank Metzger once admitted was created almost entirely from mutilated copies of the Aphex Twin album Selected Ambient Works 2. Thank you. 
CDs skipped faster than vinyl, roughly at the pace of 8th or 16th notes. A skipping or paused player turns any music into an instant drum and bass remix. Beginning in 1995, the collective Disc, aka CD terrorist Lesser, and his friends Matmos and Kid 606 began releasing improvised CDs from the sounds of ruined ones. Studying as an ethnomusicologist before moving into performance, Otomo Yoshihide's early CD, The Night Before the Death of the Sampling Virus, was less an album than a complete library of all of the samples that he'd collected for live improvisations, a master catalog that you can hear deployed across countless solo and group recordings. The most sprawling project was the six-member band Ground Zero, ricocheting between rock and jazz over a blizzard of samples, less concerned with juxtaposition than sheer media overlay. It's a sunny. The 1997 masterpiece Revolutionary Pekingese Opera version 1.28 reclaims the early 80s agitprop collage Peking Opera by Goebbels and Hart, turning it into a ravenous portrait of shopping under communism.
The group Negative Land spent the 90s building on their notion of culture jamming through media pranks, cutting up popular entertainment to expose the very things it aims to soothingly conceal. The 192-page book Fair Use is their document of U2's lawsuit against them for sonic and trademark appropriation, and a manifesto championing the artist's right to compose with mirrors, positing that sampling anything less than the whole is fair game. For Negative Land, sampling remained an inherently political act. This is their piece, Truth in Advertising. This is Pennywise. Let's go to line four. I'm Jim Phillips, and your name is... Bob. Hi, Bob. What can I do for you? I get confused by all the claims made in commercials. Oh, this is Pennywise. Line six, you're on. And your name is... Bob. Caller number five, you're on the air with Pennywise. I'm Jim Phillips. I get confused by all the claims made in commercials. Oh, let's go to line seven on Pennywise. Hi, I'm Jim Phillips. Bob, commercials. Oh, oh. I get confused by all the claims made in commercials. Oh, well, listen. I think your first responsibility is to yourself and your family. The what? Thanks for the call. Hello, you're on Pennywise with Jim Phillips, and you are... Bob. Okay, let's go to line four. This is Pennywise. I'm Jim Phillips, and your name is... Bob. Oh. Commercials. Hello, caller. I get confused by all the claims made in commercials. Oh, and your name is... Bob. 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 Hi, Bob. What can I do for you? The what? Go ahead. I get confused by all the claims made in commercials. Hmm, you sound frustrated. because I am. Well... My kids and I, for example, love to build things with scrap lumber. The what? All right. Thanks for the call, Carl. Bob. Huh. This is Pennywise. Line six. You're on. Bob. Yeah, Barb. Bob. Go ahead. Claims made in commercials. Huh. I get confused. Why? I get commercials confused. <laughs> I can imagine. The what? Well, many religious people follow the biblical plan of tithing. You may want to visit with your clergy about it, but of course... The what? The what? Commercials. Commercials. I get confused by all the claims. Then your name is... Bob. Yeah, that's a tough one. A lot of people have that problem. The what? Truth in advertising. I get confused. Advertising, though, can be a really good source of information because of the truth in advertising policy. The what? Because of the truth in advertising policy. The what? Truth in advertising. The what? Truth in advertising. Truth in advertising. You see, the law requires advertisers to tell the truth. The what? The truth. The truth. To tell the truth. Truth in advertising. Good point. Uh, so listen carefully to the wording of an ad. What? The truth in advertising. The what? Well, then you have to decide if honesty goes both ways, right? After all, so this is Pennywise. You're on the air. Hi, Bob. What can I do for you? Yeah, Jim, this is Charlie. <laughs> okay. I've got a moral question for you. The what? No, wait a minute. Thanks for the call, Bob. This is Charlie. I've got a moral question for you. Mm -hmm. Well, that's a matter for your own conscience, Charlie. I figured you'd say something like that. <laughs> All right, why don't you give it a try this year? Okay, but they'll <laughs> never catch it. <laughs> well, thanks for calling, Charlie. Thanks. This is Pennywise, line six. You're on. Yeah, Jim, this is Charlie. The lawyers of Beck threatened to sue the label Illegal Art over their first release, Deconstructing Beck, which mulched his sample pop music back into something far more challenging. Negative Land responded by picking the CD up for distribution on their label, at which point Beck's lawyers backed down, fearing bad publicity, or perhaps a lawsuit with a defendant ready to invoke free speech instead of commerce in court. That particular Beck remix was by Steve Heiss, the founder of Detritus.net. 
in the still early days of the World Wide Web, Detritus to to served as a hub to discuss the politics, aesthetics, and techniques of sampling and open source culture, as well as offering free downloads of the albums by Negative Land, John Oswald, and the KLF that had been removed from distribution by major label lawsuits. The Detritus archives are still online. By the late 80s, hardware samplers were increasingly being used in conjunction with computer software, a shift from tactile interfaces and buttons to workstations. By the 90s, MIDI sequencers like Digital Performer were joined by audio recording software like Cubase and Pro Tools, not sequencers, but sample editors, which allowed you to directly edit the audio waveforms of your recording. They were designed to replace analog tape recorders, but these programs allowed users to arrange and edit their sounds on a visual timeline, exactly as earlier composers arranged notes using sheet music. Verez's dream of organized sound was becoming the primary operating aesthetic of all composers. And the line between sounds that you record yourself and the sounds that you sample from others becomes very, very thin under this aesthetic when the bulk of composition comes down to choices in editing. It's not surprising that the pioneers, who spent painstaking hours working with primitive equipment, spent more time asking themselves questions about what it means to compose using other people's voices. And you can hear those questions in the resulting music. But by the 90s, the technology had made those questions beside the point. The practice of sampling reached its biggest audiences yet through the music of entrepreneurs like Puff Daddy. Both rock and hip-hop history could be taken for granted. Puff Daddy created apolitical party music about financial success, sampling purely seen as licensing. An artist like Moby could loop gospel and blues vocals out to infinity and put a picture of himself on the cover without irony. The light jazz artist Kenny G could overdub a smooth sax solo on top of a masterpiece by Louis Armstrong and call it a duo without his own brain forcing itself to have an aneurysm. If in the 80s, sampling had seemed inherently revolutionary, the 90s showed us that this was not the case at all. Appropriation could apparently be practiced just the same as any other form of pop music, as mere self-expression and nothing more. But, seen from the long view, sampling is less of a revolution than a return. When Bismarcky was sued in 1991, his lawyers made the point that all rap artists engaged in the practice of sampling. A better defense could have gone back even further. Published in 1602, this is the opening of a solo madrigal by Caccini based on the poem Svogava con le stelle. Published one year later, Claudio Monteverdi's expansion of the melody into a five-part madrigal.
Monteverdi blends the original tune into his polyphony seamlessly, in a way not unlike how modern composers use a sample as a foundation, covering it over with new sounds until the original source is barely audible. Monteverdi's madrigal is the version more widely known, and that is less a crime than the respect due a masterpiece. The Baroque period saw a flowering of variation form, including the parlor game of the simultaneous quadlibet, two popular tunes played at once, each forming a harmonic counterpoint to the other. Bach wove a quadlibet out of two body drinking songs about food and love, a hidden joke that forms the climactic moment of his 30 Goldberg variations. Unusually dissonant quadlibet for 1673, the second movement of Heinrich von Bieber's Battalia sets eight popular tunes on top of each other to portray a soldier's campground the night before the battle. century, a composer like Handel felt free to use both his own melodies and his own arrangements of tunes written by his contemporaries when composing a full-length opera. But after Beethoven, the notion of the romantic genius took hold, and musical borrowing of most forms was stigmatized. Handel's reputation came under assault from the musicologists of the 19th century as they rediscovered the extent of his borrowing. But much as today's producers or remixers sometimes gain more fame than the artists they produce, careful listeners can hear how Handel added as much as he borrowed. There's a reason why Handel is better remembered. And even after borrowing from contemporaries became taboo, Western composers continued to borrow extensively from folk traditions. Brahms' Hungarian Dances was essentially a suite of embroidered tunes and his biggest financial success. And even in the 20th century, the borrowings of Bartok, Stravinsky, Mahler were all celebrated. It may seem a stretch to equate Bismarcky's sampled karaoke to Monteverdi and Handel, but court decisions on individual works of art set dangerous legal precedents for all other artists. And the lawsuits of the early 90s, which stated that a musician must never steal, clearly did not fully understand what it is that the musician does. They understood property, they understood money, but their failure to understand the history of music set the tone for what has happened since. Those who are passionate about the practice and the enjoyment of the art of music in the modern world are increasingly being forced to do so outside of the law. But there is a difference between composing with notes and composing with samples. If Bartok, Stravinsky, and Mahler were celebrated instead of litigated for their folk music borrowing, people who compose with samples are leaving more of a trail. A composer who samples can't hide his influences from his audience. 
When DJ Quick sampled a videotape of an 80s Bollywood film to produce Truth Hurt's song Addictive without bothering to credit or clear the source, the result was a half-billion-dollar lawsuit from composer Bapi Lahiri. The sample of the revered Indian singer Lata Mangeshkar runs the length of the song, determining the structure of everything added to it. DJ Quick has said that his work was meant as a compliment, but turning Mangeshkar into a backup singer on a song about the pleasures of dating a pimp was seen as more an insult to the Hindu faith. Lahiri, whose own compositions often border on cover versions of Western hits, might have been a hypocrite to call addictive an example of plagiarism, but rather he called it an example of cultural imperialism, which does precisely describe the cavalier way that the artists and the label helped themselves. The case was settled out of court, adding Lahiri's name to the credits. But DJ Quick's description of his own intent as tribute can't be ignored either, as the song dramatically spearheaded Bollywood music's stateside popularity. Lata Mangeshkar is no longer only a national treasure. Eric Sermon's 2002 song, React, perfectly sums up the beautiful dangers of cross-cultural appropriation. In the middle of a rap boasting about his worldwide fame, Sermon drops a Bollywood sample of the song Chandi Kabadan, sung by Meena Kapoor. Perhaps it was an accident, or simple poetic justice, that in translation, the sentence that Sermon seems not to understand is actually a question. She is singing, If a man wants to commit suicide, what is there that you can do? The degree to which you remain indifferent to the cultural meaning of that which you are sampling is literally the degree to which you risk embarrassing yourself. And at the same time, the resulting song itself is all the more amazing for the collision. It is a layered work of art, a dialogue that resonates deeper than either of the vocalists might have intended. And collage has a habit of producing the most accurate of any possible coincidences. The poem will resemble you. It will also resemble more than just yourself. Collage makes audible for all to hear much more than the intent of any one composer. Sampling music followed two threads as the 90s came to a close. On the one hand, it was increasingly everywhere, practiced in a lucrative and safe form that thrived in the commercial sphere. On the other hand, it was a vanguard forced to the margins, hoping not to sell too many copies of their limited editions, and surreptitiously practicing collage as an illegal art. The following decade, 
would see the values holding these two systems in place simply becoming irrelevant. This has been the penultimate episode of Variations. My name is John Leidecker, and thank you for listening.